Chapter forty three of the Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Has an influence on the fortunes of several people. Mr. Pecksniff is exhibited in the plenitude of power and wields the same with fortitude and magnanimity. On the night of the storm, Mrs. Lupin, hostess of the Blue Dragon, sat by herself in her little bar. Her solitary condition, or the bad weather, or both united, made Mrs. Lupin thoughtful, not to say sorrowful, as she sat with her chin upon her hand, looking out through a low back lattice, rendered dim in the brightest daytime by clustering vine-leaves. She shook her head very often, and said, "'Dear me, oh dear, dear me!' It was a melancholy time, even in the snugness of the dragon bar. The rich expanse of cornfield, pasture-land, green slope, and gentle undulation, with its sparkling brooks, its many hedgerows, and its clumps of beautiful trees, was black and dreary, from the diamond panes of the lattice away to the far horizon, where the thunder seemed to roll along the hills. The heavy rain beat down the tender branches of vine and jessamine, and tramped on them in its fury and when the lightning gleamed it showed the tearful leaves shivering and cowering together at the window, and tapping at it urgently, as if beseeching to be sheltered from the dismal night. As a mark of her respect for the lightning, Mrs. Lupin had removed her candle to the chimney-piece. Her basket of needlework stood unheeded at her elbow. Her supper, spread out on a round table not far off, was untasted, and the knives had been removed for fear of attraction. She had sat for a long time with her chin upon her hand, saying to herself at intervals, "'Dear me! Ah, dear, dear me!' She was on the eve of saying so once more, when the latch of the house-door, closed to keep the rain out, rattled on its well-worn catch, and a traveller came in, who, shutting it after him, and walking straight up to the half-door of the bar, said rather gruffly, "'A pint of the best old beer here.' He had some reason to be gruff, for he had passed the day in a waterfall, he could have scarcely have been wetter than he was. He was wrapped up to the eyes in a rough blue sailor's coat, had an oilskin hat on, from the capacious brim of which the rain fell trickling down upon his breast and back and shoulders. Judging from a certain liveliness of chin, he had so pulled down his hat and pulled up his collar, to defend himself from the weather, that she could only see his chin, and even across that he drew the wet sleeve of his shaggy coat as she looked at him. Mrs. Lupin set him down for a good-natured fellow, too. "'A bad night,' observed the hostess cheerfully. The traveller shook himself like a Newfoundland dog, and said it was rather. "'There's a fire in the kitchen,' said Mrs. Lupin, "'and very good company there. Hadn't you better go in and dry yourself?' "'No, thank you,' said the man, glancing towards the kitchen as he spoke. He seemed to know the way. "'It's enough to give you a death of cold,' observed the hostess. "'I don't take my death easy,' returned the traveller or I should most likely have took it afore to-night. Your health, ma'am. Mrs. Lupin thanked him, but in the act of lifting the tankard to his mouth, he changed his mind and put it down again. Throwing his body back and looking about him stiffly, as a man does who is wrapped up and has his hat low down over his eyes, he said, What do you call this house? Not the dragon, do you? Mrs. Lupin complacently made an answer. Yes, the dragon. Why, then, you've got a sort of relation of mine here, ma'am, said the traveller. A young man of the name of Tatley. What mark, my old boy, apostrophising the premises? I have come upon you at last, old buck. This was touching Mrs. Lupin on a tender point, 
She turned to trim the candle on the chimney-piece, and said with her back towards the traveller, Nobody should be made more welcome at the Dragon Master than any one who brought me news of Mark. But it's many and many a long day and month since he left here in England, and whether he's alive or dead, poor fellow, heaven above us only knows. She shook her head, and her voice trembled. Her hand must have done so too, for the light required a deal of trimming. Where did he go, ma'am? asked the traveller in a gentler voice. He went, said Mrs. Lupin, with increased distress, to America. He was always tender-hearted and kind, and perhaps at this moment he may be lying in prison under sentence of death for taking pity on some miserable black and helping the poor runaway creature to escape. How could he ever go to America? Why didn't he go to some of those countries where the savages eat each other fairly and give an equal chance to every one? Quite subdued by this time, Mrs. Lupin sobbed and was retiring to a chair to give her grief free vent when the traveller caught her in his arms and she uttered a glad cry of recognition. Yes, I will, cried Mark. Another. One more. Twenty more. You didn't know me in that hat and coat. I thought you would have known me anywhere. It's ten more. So I should have known you if I could have seen you, but I couldn't. You spoke so gruff. I didn't think you could speak gruff to me, Mark, at first coming back. Fifteen more, said Mr. Tapley. How handsome and how young you look. Six more. The last half dozen weren't a fair one, and must be done over again. Lord bless you, what a treat it is to see you. One more. Well, I never was so jolly. Just a few more on account of there not being any credit in it. When Mr. Tapney stopped in these calculations in simple addition, he did it not because he was at all tired of the exercise, but because he was out of breath. The pause reminded him of other duties. Mr. Martin Chuzzlewit's outside, he said. I left him under the cart shed when I came on in to see if there was anybody here. We want to keep quiet tonight till we know the news from you and what it's best for us to do. There's not a soul in the house except the kitchen company, returned the hostess. If they were to know you had come back, Mark, they'd have a bonfire in the street, late as it is. But they mustn't know it to-night, my precious soul, said Mark. So have the house shut, and the kitchen fire made up, and when it's all ready, put a light in the window, and we'll come in. One more. I long to hear about old friends. You'll tell me all about em, won't you, Mr. Pinch, and the butcher's dog down the street? and a terrier over the way, and the wheelwrights, and every one of them. When I first caught sight of the church tonight, I thought the steeple would have choked me, I did. One more, won't you? Not a very little one to finish off with. You've had plenty, I'm sure, said the hostess. Go along with your foreign manners. That ain't foreign, bless you, cried Mark. Native as oysters, that is. One more, because it's a native, as a mark of respect for the land we live in. This don't count between you and me, you understand, said Mr. Tapley. I ain't a-kissing you now, you'll observe. I've been among the patriots. I'm a-kissing my country. It would have been very unreasonable to complain of the exhibition of his patriotism with which he followed up this explanation, that it was at all lukewarm or indifferent. When he had given full expression to his nationality, he hurried off to Martin, while Mrs. Lupin, in a state of great agitation and excitement, prepared for their reception. The company soon came tumbling out, insisting to each other that the dragon clock was half an hour too fast, and that the thunder must have affected it. Impatient, wet and weary though they were, Martin and Mark were overjoyed to see these old faces, and watched them with delighted interest as they departed from the house and passed close by them. "'There's the old tailor, Mark,' whispered Martin. "'There he goes, sir. A little bandier than he was, I think, sir, ain't he?' His figure is so far altered as it seems to me you might wheel a rather large barrow between his legs as he walks, and you could have done conveniently when we knowed him. 
there's sam a-coming out sir ah to be sure cried martin sam the hostler i wonder whether that horse of pecksniff is alive still not a doubt on it sir returned mark that's a description of animals sir as'll go on in bony way peculiar to himself for a long time and get into the newspapers at last under the title of singular tenacity of life in a quadruped as if he had ever been alive in all his life worth mentioning there's a clerk sir very drunk as usual i see him said martin laughing but my life how wet you are mark i am what do you consider yourself sir oh not half as bad said his fellow-traveller with an air of great vexation i told you not to keep on the windy side mark but let us change and change about the rain has been beating on you ever since it began you don't know how it pleases me sir said mark after a short silence if i may make so bold as to say so to hear you are going on in there that uncommon considerate way of yours which i don't mean to attend to never but which ever since that time when i was floored in eden you have showed ah mark sighed martin the less we say of that the better do i see a light yonder that's a light cried mark lord bless her what briskness she possesses now for it sir neat wines good beds and first-rate entertainment for a man or beast the kitchen fire burnt clear and red the table was spread out the kettle boiled the slippers were there the boot-jack too sheets of ham were there cooking on the gridiron half a dozen eggs were there poaching in the frying-pan a plethoric cherry brandy bottle was there winking at a foaming jug of beer upon the table rare provisions were there dangling from the rafters as if you only had to open your mouth and something exquisitely ripe and good would be glad of the excuse for tumbling into it mrs lupin who for their sakes had dislodged the very cook high priestess of the temple with her own genial hands was dressing their repast it was impossible to help it a ghost must have hugged her the atlantic ocean and the red sea being in that respect all one martin hugged her instantly mr tapley as if the idea were quite novel and never occurred to him before followed with much gravity on the same side little did i ever think said mrs lupin adjusting her cap and laughing heartily yes and blushing too often as i have said that mr pecksniff's young gentlemen were the life and soul of the dragon and that without them it would be too dull to live in little did i ever think i am sure that any one of them would ever make so free as you mr martin and still less that i shouldn't be angry with him but should be glad with all my heart to be the first to welcome him home from america with mark tapley for his for his friend mrs lupin interposed martin for his friend said the hostess evidently gratified by this distinction but at the same time admonishing mr tapley with a fork to remain at a respectful distance little did i ever think that but still less that i should ever have the changes to relate that i shall have to tell you of when you have done your supper good heaven cried martin what changes she said the hostess is quite well and now at mr pecksniff's don't be alarmed about her she is everything you could wish it's of no use mincing matters or making secrets is it added mrs lupin i know all about it you see my good creature returned martin you are exactly the person who ought to know all about it i am delighted to think you do know about that but what changes do you hint at has any death occurred no no said the hostess not as bad as that but i declare now that i will not be drawn into saying another word till you have had your supper if you ask me fifty questions in the meantime i won't answer one she was so positive that there was nothing for it but to get the supper over as quickly as possible and as they had been walking a great many miles and had fasted since the middle of the day 
they did no great violence to their own inclinations in falling on it tooth and nail it took rather longer to get through than might have been expected for half a dozen times when they thought they had finished mrs lupin exposed the fallacy of that impression triumphantly but at last in the course of time and nature they gave in and sitting with their slippered feet stretched out upon the kitchen hearth which was wonderfully comforting for the night had grown by this time raw and chilly and looking with involuntary admiration at their dimpled buxom blooming hostess as the fire sparkled in her eyes and glimmered in her raven hair they composed themselves to listen to her news many were the exclamations of surprise which interrupted her when she told them of the separation between mr pecksniff and his daughters and between the same good gentleman and mr pinch but these were nothing to the indignant demonstrations of martin when she related as the common talk of the neighbourhood what entire possession he had obtained over the mind and person of old mr chuzzlewit and what high honour he designed for mary on receipt of this intelligence martin's slippers flew off in a twinkling and he began pulling on his wet boots with that indefinite intention of going somewhere instantly and doing something to somebody which is the first safety valve of a hot temper he said martin smooth-tongued villain that he is he give me that other boot mark where is you a-thinking of going to sir inquired mr tapley drying the sole at the fire and looking coolly at it as he spoke as if it were a slice of toast where repeated martin you don't suppose i'm going to remain here do you the imperturbable mark confessed that he did you do retorted martin angrily i'm much obliged to you what do you take me for i take you for what you are sir said mark and consequently i am quite sure that whatever you do will be right and sensible the boot sir martin darted an impatient look at him without taking it and walked rapidly up and down the kitchen several times with one boot and a stocking on but mindful of his eden resolution he had already gained many victories over himself when mark was in the case and he resolved to conquer now so he came back to the boot jack laid his hand on mark's shoulder to steady himself pulled the boot off picked up his slippers put them on and sat down again he could not help thrusting his hands into the very bottom of his pockets and muttering at intervals pecksniff too that fellow upon my soul indeed what next and so forth nor could he help occasionally shaking his fist at the chimney with a very threatening countenance but this did not last long and he heard mrs lupin out if not with composure at all events in silence as to mr pecksniff himself observed the hostess in conclusion spreading out the skirts of her gown with both hands and nodding her head a great many times as she did so i don't know what to say somebody must have poisoned his mind or influenced him in some extraordinary way i cannot believe that such a noble-spoken gentleman would go and do wrong of his own accord a noble-spoken gentleman how many people are there in the world who for no better reason uphold their pecksniffs to the last and abandon virtuous men when pecksniffs breathe upon them as to mr pinch pursued the landlady if ever there was a clear good pleasant worthy soul alive pinch and no other is his name but how do we know that old mr chuzzlewit himself was not the cause of difference arising between him and mr pecksniff no one but themselves can tell for mr pinch has a proud spirit though he has such a quiet way and when he left us and was so sorry to go he scorned to make his story good even to me poor old tom said martin in a tone that sounded like remorse it's a comfort to know resumed the landlady that he has his sister living with him and is doing well 
Only yesterday he sent me back by post a little here the colour came into her cheeks, a little trifle I was bold enough to lend him when he went away, saying, with many thanks, that he had good employment and didn't want it. It was the same note. He hadn't broken it. I never thought I could have been so little pleased to see a banknote come back to me as I was to see that. Kindly said, and heartily said Martin, is it not, Mark? She can't say anything as does not possess them qualities, returned Mr. Tapley, which as much belongs to the dragon as its license. And now that we've got quite cool and fresh to the subject again, sir, what will you do? If you're not proud and can make up your mind to go through what you spoke of, coming along, that's the course for you to take. If you started wrong with your grandfather, which will excuse my taking the liberty of saying, appears to have been the case, up with you, sir, and tell him so, and make an appeal to his affections. Don't stand out. He's a great deal older than you, and if he was hasty, you was hasty too. Give way, sir. Give way. The eloquence of Mr. Tapley was not without its effect on Martin, but still he hesitated and expressed his reason thus. That's all very true and perfectly correct, Mark, and if it were a mere question of humbling myself before him, I would not consider it twice. But don't you see that being wholly under this hypocrite's government, and having, if what we hear to be true, no mind or will of his own, I throw myself, in fact, not at his feet, but at the feet of Mr. Pecksniff, and when I am rejected and spurned away, said Martin, turning crimson at the thought, it is not by him, my own blood stirred against me, but by Pecksniff, Pecksniff, Mark. Well, but we know beforehand, returned the politic Mr. Tapley, that Pecksniff is a wagabond, a scoundrel, and a willain. A most pernicious villain, said Martin. A most pernicious willain. We know that beforehand, sir, and consequently it's no shame to be defeated by Pecksniff. "'But blow, Pecksniff!' cried Mr. Tapley, in the fervour of his eloquence. "'Who's he? It's not in the nature of Pecksniff to shame us, unless he agreed with us or done us a service. And in case he offered any audacity of that description, we could express our sentiments in the English language, I hope.' "'Pecksniff!' repeated Mr. Tapley, with ineffable disdain. "'What's Pecksniff? Who's Pecksniff? Where's Pecksniff? That he's to be so much considered. We're not calculating for ourselves.' He laid uncommon emphasis on the last syllable of that word, and looked full in Martin's face. We're making an effort for a young lady, likewise as has undergone her a share, and whatever little hope we have, this here Pecksniff is not to stand in its way. I expect I never heard of an act of Parliament that was made by Pecksniff. Pecksniff, why, I wouldn't see the man myself, I wouldn't hear him, wouldn't choose to know he was in company. I'd scrape my shoes on the scraper at the door, and call that Pecksniff, if you liked but I wouldn't condescend no further. The amazement of Mrs. Lupin, and indeed of Mr. Tapley himself, for that matter, at this impassioned flow of language, was immense. But Martin, after looking thoughtfully at the fire for a short time, said, You're right, Mark. Right or wrong, it shall be done. I'll do it. One more word, sir, returned Mark. Only think of him so far as not to give him a handle against you. Don't you do anything secret that he can report before you get there? Don't you even see Miss Mary in the morning? But let this here dear friend of ours, Mr. Tapley bestowed a smile upon the hostess, prepare her for what's a-going to happen, and carry any little message as may be agreeable. She knows how, don't you? Mrs. Lupin laughed and tossed her head. Then you go in, bold and free as a gentleman should. I haven't done nothing underhand, says you. I haven't been a-skulking about the premises here. I am, forgive me, I ask your pardon. God bless you. Martin smiled, but felt that it was a good advice notwithstanding, and resolved to act upon it. 
when they had ascertained from mrs lupin that pecksniff had already returned from the great ceremonial at which they beheld him in his glory and when they had fully arranged the order of their proceedings they went to bed intent upon the morrow in pursuance of their project as agreed upon at this discussion mr tapley issued forth the next morning after breakfast charged with a letter from martin to his grandfather requesting leave to wait upon him for a few minutes and postponing as he went along the congratulations of his numerous friends until a more convenient season he soon arrived at mr pecksniff's house at that gentleman's door with a face so immovable that it would have been next to an impossibility for the most acute physiognomist to determine what he was thinking about or whether he was thinking at all he straightway knocked person of mr tapley's observation could not long remain insensible to the fact that mr pecksniff was making the end of his nose very blunt against the glass of the parlour window in an angular attempt to discover who had knocked at the door nor was mr tapley slow to baffle this movement on the part of the enemy by perching himself on the top step and presenting the crown of his hat in that direction but possibly mr pecksniff had already seen him for mark soon heard his shoes creaking as he advanced to open the door with his own hands mr pecksniff was as cheerful as ever and sang a little song in the passage how do you do sir said mark oh cried mr pecksniff tapley i believe the prodigal returned we don't want any beer my friend thank you sir said mark i couldn't accommodate you if you did a letter sir wait for an answer for me cried mr pecksniff and an answer eh? not for you sir i think said mark pointing out the direction chuzzlewit i believe the name is sir oh returned mr pecksniff thank you yes who's it from my good young man the gentleman it comes from wrote his name inside sir returned mr tapley with extreme politeness i see him a signing of it at the end while i was a-waiting and he said he wanted an answer did he asked mr pecksniff in his most persuasive manner mark replied in the affirmative he shall have an answer certainly said mr pecksniff tearing the letter into small pieces as mildly as if that were the most flattering attention a correspondent could receive have the goodness to give him that with my compliments if you please good morning whereupon he handed mark the scraps retired and shut the door mark thought it prudent to subdue his personal emotions and return to martin at the dragon they were not unprepared for such a reception and suffered an hour or so to elapse before making another attempt when this interval had gone by they returned to mr pecksniff's house in company martin knocked this time while mr tapley prepared himself to keep the door open with his foot and shoulder when anybody came and by that means secure an enforced parley but this precaution was needless for the servant girl appeared almost immediately brushing quickly past her as he had resolved in such a case to do martin closely followed by his faithful ally opened the door of that parlour in which he knew a visitor was most likely to be found passed at once into the room and stood without a word of notice or announcement in the presence of his grandfather mr pecksniff also was in the room and mary in the swift instant of their mutual recognition martin saw the old man droop his grey head and hide his face in his hands it smote him to the heart in his most selfish and most careless day this lingering remnant of the old man's ancient love this buttress of a ruined tower he had built up in the time gone by with so much pride and hope would have caused a pang in martin's heart but now changed for the better in his worst respect 
looking through an altered medium on his former friend, the guardian of his childhood, so broken and bowed down, resentment, sullenness, self-confidence and pride were all swept away, before the starting tears upon the withered cheeks. He could not bear to see them, he could not bear to think they fell at sight of him, he could not bear to view, reflected in them, the reproachful and irrevocable past. He hurriedly advanced to seize the old man's hand in his, when Mr. Pecksniff interposed himself between them. "'No, young man,' said Mr. Pecksniff, striking himself upon the breast, and stretching out his other arm towards his guest, as if it were a wing to shelter him. "'No, sir, none of that. Strike here, sir. Launch your arrows at me, sir, if you'll have the goodness, not at him.' "'Grandfather,' cried Martin, "'hear me, I implore you, let me speak.' "'Would you, sir, would you?' said Mr. Pecksniff, dodging about so as to keep himself always between them. "'It is not enough, sir, that you come into my house like a thief in the night. Or I should rather say, for we can never be too particular on the subject of truth, like a thief in the daytime, bringing your dissolute companions with you, to plant themselves with their backs against the inside of my parlour doors, and prevent the entrance or issuing forth of any of my household.' Mark had taken up this position, and held it quite unmoved. But you would also strike at venerable virtue, would you, knowing that it is not defenceless? I will be its shield, young man. Assail me. Come on, sir. Fire away. Pecksniff, said the old man, in a feeble voice, calm yourself. Be quiet. I can't be calm, cried Mr. Pecksniff, and won't be quiet. My benefactor and my friend, shall even my house be no refuge for your hoary pillow? "'Stand aside,' said the old man, stretching out his hand, "'and let me see what it is I used to love so dearly.' "'It is right that you should see it, my friend,' said Mr. Pecksniff. "'It is well that you should see it, my noble sir. "'It is desirable that you should contemplate it in its true proportions. "'Behold it! There it is, sir! There it is!' Martin could hardly be a mortal man and not express in his face something of the anger and disdain with which Mr. Pecksniff inspired in him. But beyond this he evinced no knowledge whatever of that gentleman's presence or existence. True, he had once, and that at first, glanced at him involuntarily and with supreme contempt, but for any other heed he took of him there might have been nothing in his place save empty air. As Mr. Pecksniff withdrew from between them, agreeably to the wish just now expressed, which he did during the delivery of the observations last recorded, old Martin, who had taken Mary Graham's hand in his, and whispered kindly to her, as telling her she had no cause to be alarmed, gently pushed her from him behind his chair, and looked steadily at his grandson. "'And that,' he said, "'is he. That is he. Say what you wish to say, but come no nearer.' "'His sense of justice is so fine,' said Mr. Pecksniff, "'that he will hear even him, although he knows beforehand that nothing can come of it. Ingenuous mind!' Mr. Pecksniff did not address himself immediately to any person in saying this, but assuming the position of the chorus in a Greek tragedy, delivered his opinion as a commentary on the proceedings. "'Grandfather,' said Martin, with great earnestness, "'from a painful journey, from a hard life, from a sick-bed, from privation and distress, from gloom and disappointment, from almost hopelessness and despair, I have come back to you.' "'Rovers of this sort,' observed Mr. Pecksniff, as chorus, very commonly come back when they find they don't meet with the success they expected in their marauding ravages. But for this faithful man, said Martin, turning towards Mark, whom I first knew in this place, and who went away with me voluntarily as a servant, 
but has been throughout my zealous and devoted friend but for him i must have died abroad far from home far from any help or consolation far from the probability even of my wretched fate being ever known to any one who cared to hear it oh that you would let me say of it being known to you the old man looked at mr pecksniff mr pecksniff looked at him did you speak worthy sir said mr pecksniff with a smile the old man answered in the negative i know what you thought said mr pecksniff with another smile let him go on my friend the development of self-interest in the human mind is always a curious study let him go on sir go on observed the old man in a mechanical obedience it appeared to mr pecksniff's suggestion i have been so wretched and so poor said martin that i am indebted to the charitable help of a stranger in a land of strangers for the means of returning here all this tells against me in your mind i know i have given you cause to think i have been driven here wholly by want and i have not been led on in any degree by affection or regret when i parted from you grandfather i deserved that suspicion but i do not now i do not now the chorus put its hand in its waistcoat and smiled let him go on my worthy sir it said i know what you are thinking of but don't express it prematurely old martin raised his eyes to mr pecksniff's face and appearing to derive renewed instruction from his looks and words said once again go on i have little more to say returned martin and as i say it now with little or no hope grandfather whatever dawn of hope i had on entering the room believe it to be true at least believe it to be true beautiful truth exclaimed the chorus looking upward how is your name profaned by vicious persons you don't live in a well my holy principle but on the lips of false mankind it is hard to bear with mankind dear sir addressing the elder mr chuzzlewit but let us do so meekly it is our duty to do so let us be among the few who do their duty if pursued the chorus soaring up into a lofty flight as the poet informs us england expects every man to do his duty england is the most sanguine country on the face of the earth and will find itself continually disappointed upon that subject said martin looking calmly at the old man as he spoke but glancing once at mary whose face was now buried in her hands upon the back of his easy-chair upon that subject which first occasioned a division between us my mind and heart are incapable of change whatever influence they have undergone since that unhappy time has not been one to weaken but to strengthen me i cannot profess sorrow for that nor irresolution in that nor shame in that nor would you wish me i know but that i might have trusted to your love if i had thrown myself manfully upon it that i might have won you over with ease if i had been more yielding and more considerate that i should have best remembered myself in forgetting myself and recollecting you reflection solitude and misery have taught me i came resolved to say this and to ask your forgiveness not so much in hope for the future as in regret for the past for all that i would ask of you is that you would aid me to live help me get honest work to do and i would do it my condition places me at the disadvantage of seeming to have only my selfish ends to serve but try if that be so or not try if i be self-willed obdurate and haughty as i was or have been disciplined in a rough school let the voice of nature and association plead between us grandfather and do not for one fault however thankless quite reject me 
as he ceased the grey head of the old man drooped again and he concealed his face behind his outspread fingers my dear sir cried mr pecksniff bending over him you must not give way to this it is very natural and very amiable but you must not allow the shameless conduct of one whom you long ago cast off to move you so far rouse yourself think said pecksniff think of me my friend i will returned old martin looking up into his face you recall me to myself i will why what said mr pecksniff sitting down beside him in a chair which he drew up for the purpose and tapping him playfully on the arm what is the matter with my strong-minded compatriot if i may venture to take the liberty of calling him that by that endearing expression shall i have to scold my coadjutor or to reason with an intellect like this i think not no no there is no occasion said the old man a momentary feeling nothing more indignation observed mr pecksniff will bring the scolding tear into the honest eye i know he wiped his own elaborately but we have highest duties to perform than that rouse yourself mr chuzzlewit shall i give expression to your thoughts my friend yes said old martin leaning back in his chair and looking at him half in vacancy and half in admiration as if he were fascinated by the man speak for me pecksniff thank you you are true to me thank you do not unman me sir said mr pecksniff shaking his hand vigorously or i shall be unequal to the task it is not agreeable to my feelings my good sir to address the person who is now before us for when i ejected him from this house after hearing of his unnatural conduct from your lips i renounced communication with him for ever but you desire it and that is sufficient young man the door is immediately behind the companion of your infamy blush if you can be gone without a blush if you can't martin looked as steadily at his grandfather as if there had been a dead silence all this time the old man looked no less steadily at mr pecksniff when i ordered you to leave this house upon the last occasion of your being dismissed from it with disgrace said mr pecksniff when stung and stimulated beyond endurance by your shameless conduct to this extraordinarily noble-minded individual i exclaimed go forth i told you that i wept for your depravity do not suppose that the tear which stands in my eye at this moment is shed for you it is shed for him sir it is shed for him here mr pecksniff accidentally dropping the tear in question on a bald part of mr chuzzlewit's head wiped the place with his pocket-handkerchief and begged pardon it is shed for him sir whom you seek to make the victim of your arts said mr pecksniff whom you seek to plunder to deceive and to mislead it is shed in sympathy with him and admiration of him not in pity for him for happily he knows what you are you shall not wrong him further sir in any way said mr pecksniff quite transported with enthusiasm while i have life you may bestride my senseless corpse sir that is very likely i can imagine a mind like yours deriving great satisfaction from any measure of that kind while i continue to be called upon to exist sir you must strike at him through me or oh, said mr pecksniff shaking his head at martin with indignant jocularity and in such a cause you will find me my young sir an ugly customer still martin looked steadily and mildly at his grandfather will you give me no answer he said at length not a word you hear what has been said replied the old man without averting his eyes from the face of mr pecksniff who nodded encouragingly i have not heard your voice i have not heard your spirit returned martin tell him again said the old man still gazing up in mr pecksniff's face 
i only here replied martin strong in his purpose from the first and stronger in it as he felt how pecksniff winced and shrunk beneath his contempt i only hear what you say to me grandfather perhaps it was well for mr pecksniff that his venerable friend found in his mr pecksniff's features an exclusive and engrossing object of contemplation for if his eyes had gone astray and he had compared young martin's bearing with that of his zealous defender the latter disinterested gentleman would scarcely have shown to greater advantage than on the memorable afternoon when he took tom pinch's last receipt in full of all demands one really might have thought there was some quality in mr pecksniff an emanation from the brightness and purity within him perhaps which set off and adorned his foes they looked so gallant and so manly beside him not a word said martin for the second time i remember that i have a word to say pecksniff observed the old man but a word you spoke of being indebted to the charitable help of some stranger for the means of returning to england who is he and what help in money did he render you although he asked this question of martin he did not look upwards towards him but kept his eyes on mr pecksniff as before it appeared to have become a habit with him both in a literal and a figurative sense to look to mr pecksniff alone martin took out his pencil tore a leaf from his pocket-book and hastily wrote down the particulars of his debt to mr bevan the old man stretched out his hand for the paper and took it but his eyes did not wander from mr pecksniff's face it would be a poor pride and a false humility said martin in a low voice to say i do not wish that to be paid or that i have any present hope of being able to pay it but i never felt my poverty so deeply as i feel it now read it to me pecksniff said the old man mr pecksniff after approaching the perusal of the paper as if it were a manuscript confession of a murder complied i think pecksniff said the old man i could wish that to be discharged i should not like the lender who was abroad who had no opportunity of making inquiry and who did as he thought a kind action to suffer an honourable sentiment my dear sir your own entirely but a dangerous precedent said mr pecksniff permit me to suggest it shall not be a precedent returned the old man it is the only recognition of him but we will talk of it again you shall advise me there is nothing else nothing else said mr pecksniff buoyantly but for you to recover this intrusion this cowardly and indefensible outrage on your feelings with all possible dispatch and smile again you have nothing more to say inquired the old man laying his hand with unusual earnestness on mr pecksniff's sleeve mr pecksniff would not say what rose to his lips for reproaches he observed were useless you have nothing at all to urge you are sure of that if you have no matter what it is speak freely i will oppose nothing that you ask of me said the old man tears rose in such abundance to mr pecksniff's eyes at this proof of unlimited confidence on the part of his friend that he was fain to clasp the bridge of his nose convulsively before he could at all compose himself when he had the power of utterance again he said with great emotion that he hoped he should live to deserve this and added that he had no other observation whatever to make for a few moments the old man sat looking at him with that blank and motionless expression which is not uncommon in the faces of those whose faculties are on the wane in age but he rose up firmly too and walked towards the door from which mark withdrew to make way for him the obsequious mr pecksniff proffered his arm the old man took it turning at the door he said to martin waving him off with his hand you have heard him go away it is all over go 
Mr. Pecksniff murmured certain cheering expressions of sympathy and encouragement as they retired, and Martin, awakening from the stupor into which the closing portion of this scene had plunged him, to the opportunity afforded by their departure, caught the innocent cause all in his embrace and pressed her to his heart. "'Dear girl,' said Martin, "'he has not changed you. Why, what an impotent and harmless knave the fellow is!' you have restrained yourself so nobly you have borne so much restrain myself cried martin cheerfully you were by and you were unchanged i knew what more advantage did i want the sight of me was such a bitterness to the dog that i had my triumph in his being forced to endure it but tell me my love for the few hasty words we can exchange now are precious what is this which has been rumoured to me is it true that you are persecuted by this knave's addresses I was, dear Martin, and to some extent I am now, but my chief source of unhappiness has been anxiety for you. Why did you leave us in such terrible suspense? Sickness, distance, the dread of hinting at our real condition, the impossibility of concealing it except in perfect silence, the knowledge that the truth would have pained you infinitely more than uncertainty and doubt, said Martin hurriedly, as indeed everything else was done and said in those few hurried moments were the causes of my writing only once but pecksniff you needn't fear to tell me the whole tale for you saw me with him face to face hearing him speak and not taking him by the throat what is the history of his pursuit of you is it known to my grandfather yes and he assists him in it no she answered eagerly thank heaven cried martin that leaves his mind unclouded in that one respect i do not think said mary it was known to him at first when this man had sufficiently prepared his mind he revealed it to him by degrees i think so but i only know it from my own impression not from anything they told me then he spoke to me alone my grandfather did said martin yes spoke to me alone and told me what the hound had said cried martin don't repeat it and i said i knew well what qualities he possessed that he was moderately rich in good repute and high in his favour and confidence but seeing me very much distressed he said that he would not control or force my inclinations but would content himself with telling me the fact he would not pain me by dwelling on it or reverting to it nor has he ever done so since but has truly kept his word the man himself asked martin he has had few opportunities of pursuing his suit i have never walked out alone or remained alone an instant in his presence dear martin i must tell you she continued that the kindness of your grandfather to me remains unchanged i am his companion still and indescribable tenderness and compassion seem to have mingled themselves with his old regard and if i were his only child i could not have a gentler father what former fancy or old habit survives in this when his heart has turned so cold to you is a mystery i cannot penetrate but it has been and it is a happiness to me that i remain true to him that if he should wake from his delusion even at the point of death i am here loved to recall to you in his thoughts martin looked with admiration on her glowing face and pressed his lips to hers i have sometimes heard and read she said that those whose powers have been enfeebled long ago and whose lives had faded as it were into a dream have been known to rouse themselves before death and inquire for familiar faces once very dear to them but forgotten unrecognized hated even in the meantime 
think if with his old impressions of this man he should suddenly resume his former self and find in him his only friend i would not urge you to abandon him dearest said martin though i could count the years we are to wear out asunder but the influence this fellow exercises over him has steadily increased i fear she could not help admitting that steadily imperceptibly and surely until it was paramount and supreme she herself had none and yet he treated her with more affection than at any previous time martin thought the inconsistency a part of his weakness and decay does the influence extend to fear said martin is he timid of asserting his own opinion in the presence of this infatuation i fancied so just now i have thought so often often when we are sitting alone almost as we used to do and i have been reading a favourite book to him or he has been talking quite cheerfully i have observed that the entrance of mr pecksniff has changed his whole demeanour he has broken off immediately and become what you have seen to-day when we first came here he had his impetuous outbreaks in which it was not easy for mr pecksniff with his utmost plausibility to appease him but these have long since dwindled away he defers to him in everything and has no opinion upon any question but that which is forced upon him by this treacherous man such was the account rapidly furnished in whispers and interrupted brief as it was by many false alarms of mr pecksniff's return which martin received of his grandfather's decline and of that good gentleman's ascendancy he heard of tom pinch too and jonas too with not a little about himself into the bargain for though lovers are remarkable for leaving a great deal unsaid on all occasions and very properly desiring to come back and say it they are remarkable also for a wonderful power of condensation and can in one way or other give utterance to more language eloquent language in any given short space of time than all the six hundred and fifty-eight members in the commons house of parliament of the united kingdom of great britain and ireland who are strong lovers no doubt but of their country only which makes all the difference for in a passion of that kind which is not always returned it is the custom to use as many words as possible and express nothing whatever a caution from mr tapley a hasty interchange of farewells and of something else which the proverb says must not be told of afterwards a white hand held out to mr tapley himself which he kissed with the devotion of a knight-errant more farewells more something else's a parting word from martin that he would write from london and would do great things there yet heaven knows what but he quite believed it and mark and he stood on the outside of the pecksniffian halls a short interview after such an absence said martin sorrowfully but we are well out of the house we might have placed ourselves in a false position by remaining there even so long mark i don't know about ourselves sir he returned but somebody else would have got into a false position if he'd happened to come back again while we was there i had the door all ready sir if pecksniff had showed his head or i had only so much as listened behind it i would have caught him like a walnut he's the sort of man added mr tapley musing as would squeeze soft i know a person who was evidently going to mr pecksniff's house passed them at this moment he raised his eyes at the mention of the architect's name and when he had gone on a few yards stopped and gazed at them mr tapley also looked over his shoulder and so did martin for the stranger as he passed had looked very sharply at them who may that be i wonder said martin the face seems familiar to me but i don't know the man 
"'He seems to have an amiable desire that his face should be tolerable familiar to us,' said Mr. Tapley. "'For he's a-staring pretty hard. He'd better not waste his beauty, for he ain't got much to spare.' Coming in sight of the dragon, they saw a travelling carriage at the door. "'And a Salisbury carriage,' said Mr. Tapley. "'That's what he came in, depend upon it. What's in the wind now? A new pupil, I shouldn't wonder. Perhaps it's an order for another grammar school of the same pattern as the last.' Before they could enter the door, Mrs. Lupin came running out, and beckoning them to the carriage, showed them a portmanteau with the name of Chuzzlewit upon it. "'Miss Pecksniff's husband, that was,' said the good woman to Martin. "'I didn't know what terms you might be on, and was quite in a worry till you come back.' "'He and I have never interchanged a word yet,' observed Martin, "'and as I have no wish to be better or worse acquainted with him, I will not put myself in his way. We passed him on the road. I have no doubt I am glad he timed his coming as he did.' Upon my word, Miss Pecksniff's husband travels gaily. A very fine-looking gentleman with him, in the best room now, whispered Mrs. Lupin, glancing up as the window as they went into the house. He has ordered everything that can be got for dinner, and has the glossiest moustaches and whiskers you ever saw. Has he? cried Martin. Why, then we'll endeavour to avoid him, too, in the hope that our self-denial may be strong enough for the sacrifice. It is only for a few hours, said Martin dropping wearily into a chair behind the little screen in the bar. "'Our visit has met with no success, my dear Mrs. Lupin, and I must go to London.' "'Dear, dear!' cried the hostess. "'Yes, one foul wind no more makes a winter than one swallow makes a summer. I'll try it again. Tom Pinch has succeeded. With his advice to guide me, I may do the same. I took Tom under my protection once. God save the mark,' said Martin, with a melancholy smile and promised I would make his fortune. Perhaps Tom will take me under his protection now, and teach me how to earn my bread. End of chapter 43